begin with prayer. And uh, as always, we pray for the people around the world that listen that aren't here physically. I heard, got more emails this week from such individuals and uh, that are so thankful that they can be learning the Word of God uh, right over the Internet. So let's pray. Father, we do lift up uh, your beloved saints uh, who are, in a sense, in the diaspora, the, the scattered ones who are hungry for the Word and just don't have a place to go to find it. We pray for them and our, uh, pray that the words that we share would bring spiritual benefit to them and for us too that our hearts and minds would be renewed by your word. And we pray that this Sunday we could bring honor and glory to your name as we worship you and as we seek your face in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have a wedding too this afternoon, so that'll be exciting. <laughs> Okay, um, 2 Corinthians, we went in, now we're into chapter 3. We finished chapter 2, we're in chapter 3. And Paul begins by discussing letters of commendation. Letters of commendation. And in the ancient world, it was, let me read the passage and then describe what he's talking to, talking about. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we as some, or do we need as some letters of condemnation to you? Commendation. I hope this isn't a, I hope this whole Sunday morning is not going to go like this. <laughs> yeah, get the wedding messed up here. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? In the ancient world, it was common and certainly not considered a social wrong or, or anything negative, but it was common when someone was traveling to speak to or greet or do business with people that he had not previously met to bring along a letter of commendation that would be uh, sort of an introduction from someone they did know or did uh, come to respect to say this is this person has my endorsement. Uh, please receive them, okay? And I think you, you see the same thing today. People publish a book. A lot of times they'll have a list of people in the front of it that say, you know, this person is a uh, a good brother in Christ, or this person has a lot to commend them. And, and so we have something similar today. But today we have better ways to be able to verify things because of all our ability to travel and communicate. And so uh, back then it wasn't so easy, right? You, you couldn't go on the Internet and Google their name <laughs> and find out what, what's going on with the person. So they were talking about these letters of um, um, commendation. But what Paul is saying is that he really shouldn't need a letter of commendation uh, either from them or to them because he was the one who founded the church. It was through his apostolic preaching of the gospel that there came to be a church in Corinth. So uh, there's a certain irony to the fact that it's as if he did need such a thing because they've come to listen to the super apostles, the the people that had come in and, and questioned Paul, questioned his character, questioned his motives, questioned his teaching, questioned his looks, questioned everything about him, 
question is eloquence. And so now Paul is in this awkward position of having to defend himself to the very church that had come into existence under his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this, in a sense, is somewhat of a um, uh, irony that he would even need to talk about this. And so as he is speaking to them, he wants them to realize he's he's not trying to uh, just commend himself. He wants them ultimately to be thankful because of what God's done through the Gospels. Now, this is a thematic thing. This commendation word is used eight times in 2 Corinthians. So uh, they probably accuse Paul of commending himself. Now, again, we have this phrase, the hoi polloi, as some, literally, in the Greek, the hoi polloi. We talked about those uh, last week, the many. That's a word that's still used in English. When we use the word hoi polloi in English, it usually means the masses out there. Okay? The hoi polloi. Letters. Now, that's going to be a repeated theme. It would be like credentials or something like that. Notice... The uh, repeated phrases, remember, we're working on uh, learning hermeneutics, some of us in the class there. Letters of combination. Verse 2, you are our letters, known and read by all. Verse 3, you are a letter of Christ, not written with ink, but written, again, inscribed. So, uh, and then going on further into this chapter, he'll bring up the idea again of letters and writing and is going to refer to Moses and the written tablets and, and so on in the Ten Commandments. So that's a theme. That's, that's an important thing to know when you're interpreting the Bible. Look for repeated themes. And so letters here is going to become a very important. Um, uh, okay, so letters of commendation to you or from you. The unexpected, this is a rhetorical question that has the expected answer of no. The expected answer of no. Let's look up a couple of cross-references. Let's just, Robert, why don't you look up 2 Corinthians 5.12 and Carl, 2 Corinthians 12.11. And I have some quotes here. I got a little more organized. I actually have my commentary in a binder here. I got tired of flipping around trying to find all these things. So, yeah. I broke down and spent 39 cents and got myself a binder. <laughs> I expect a reimbursement on this one. Um, here's a Garland talks about what a letter of commendation is. Um, it's more like credentials. Are we beginning all over again to produce our credentials? He says Marshall shows that self-commendation was a common form of recommendation in which a person committed himself to another with or without the aid of mutual connections with the intention of forming a reciprocal relationship based on trust. In self-commendation, the person does more than simply introduce himself. He entrusts himself to the other. The practice of commendation, therefore, is not a moral issue but a social one. So that was explaining how this worked in the ancient world. So now we had... 2 Corinthians 5.12 For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf 
that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Okay. So uh, you see this theme, and as part of understanding 2 Corinthians, and we've gone over and over the background because it just it comes through this whole letter, that there's a certain defensiveness, there's a certain tension, there's a certain problem going on between Paul and the Corinthian church. And so that's just always coming through as it does there. Okay. Now, uh, then, then in 2 Corinthians 12, 11. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Okay. Paul, Paul is, is later saying, I become a fool for having to try to, to give his credentials. And in this case, it was visions that he had in 2 Corinthians 12. And he said, I shouldn't have to, he's sort of saying, I shouldn't have to be doing this. I shouldn't have to be going through this. Because Paul uh, had uh, treated these people correctly. He had preached the true gospel to them. He committed, committed himself to them. And they should not be listening to these super apostles that are questioning his message. But he was willing to go through all of this sorrow and difficulty in order to preserve the, their well-being. And that's what was necessary. Because it wasn't that Paul's standing in their eyes was the main thing that was in jeopardy, although it certainly was. But that really wouldn't have hurt much if Paul just isn't liked. It's not going to hurt him. But it's his gospel that's at stake. Amen. Because the people that are trying to discredit Paul are also trying to discredit his gospel and trying to substitute it with another. So he has to defend himself so that his the, the gospel doesn't come into disrepute uh, with him, the one who preached it. So that's what's really going on. There's a real important gospel issue that's happening. Okay, now uh, I had one more little quote, and then we'll go to the next verse. In, uh, this is a summary from Garland. In, in a rueful tone, he basically asked them, has our relationship sunk to such a low that I must, must now call upon outside parties to vouch for me? Okay? Um, <laughs> that's a good summary of the, what the passage says. Now, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 2. You are our letter, there's that word again, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Now, there's a contrast. Uh, I mean, if you look at the next verse, it says, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of the human hearts. So that, so we see where we're going with this. You are our letter. And the word written in the Greek is a little different word, and it means having been inscribed. So a, a better English translation for written is inscribed. And Paul is going to start here with a, a, an analogy that he's going to carry on all the way through this chapter. And it, the analogy has to do with the Ten Commandments. That's, that's UHF interference with the channel that that mic there is on. Okay. I think I may have to get a different one. I can't, the channel doesn't change. Anyhow, um, so we have the Ten Commandments as, as an illustration. And, and 
he's taking the old covenant idea of the of the two tablets and that they were inscribed by the finger of God with the very words of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And Paul is going to set up an analogy that will go all the way through this chapter where now God is shining into human hearts and he's inscribing his message on hearts. And the finger of God would be the Holy Spirit writing the message of his truth on our very hearts. And Paul warns about just the letter, and we're going to talk about this in a, uh, probably another, another couple of weeks, but the let, there's, there's a misinterpretation of this passage where it says the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. People set up that as a contrast between the Bible and the Spirit. And that's not at all what Paul is trying to do, and, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But the difference isn't between the truth of the Bible versus a work of the Spirit. It's between the truth of the Bible not fully understood because of having this veil, okay? Because it says as if, as they read Moses, there's a veil, and they're not seeing that Moses is writing about Christ, okay? So you, you could you could literally memorize the Bible and be lost. Amen. Did you know that? You could you could know every single word and just recite it back and be lost. But it isn't because the Bible itself is a poison pill. It's not at all. It's not that the Bible is false. No. And it's not that the Bible doesn't teach us the truth about Christ. But it's, the fact is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when the Holy Spirit writes on our hearts, then the truths of the Bible come alive, and we look and see messianic salvation. There was... Otherwise, perhaps just hidden from us. Yes. Every time I go home, ever since I got saved, my family asks me, what is it that you have? And for me to try and tell them, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> well, that's that's a difficulty a lot of people have. Um, I just got a email from a, a, a lifelong friend that I actually met in Bible college the first year I was saved. And he says, I have a friend who's a Christian and he's going to go join the Roman Catholic Church. And what would be a good book to give him? So I said, well, I've got a lot of ex-Catholic friends. I'll ask, so I asked Dick. And you recommended Bettner, Lorraine Bettner. And I asked uh, Brian, uh, what's Brian's last name? Brian. Well, anyhow, he says, just point him to the Ten Commandments. The Catholics can't even get that right, he says. <laughs> Where you standing there when he said that? Yeah, they, they skipped the one against graven images and then split the tenth one into two because they don't want the Ten Commandments telling them that they can't have their icons. Uh, and so that's what he pointed out. Now, so people often say, I don't know, I, I can't. This is really almost an illustration of what we're talking about, where you ha- actually have the facts, and it just sort of glazes over. Because a lot of people in our congregation were converted uh, to uh, evangelicalism, or biblical Christianity is a better way of describing it, from Roman Catholicism. And, and they have many friends and relatives that are Catholic, and trying to tell them, well, what are you doing? What's, what's the difference? What are you talking about? 
And, and, they, and they'll typically say, well, we believe all that. We believe in Jesus died on the cross, and we believe in the Trinity, and we believe in the Bible. And you almost have the same thing going on as what Paul's talking about with his Jewish brethren who had the veil. And the religion keeps people from seeing that there, there's nothing been written on their hearts. Okay? And when, when a person turns to the Lord, it says later in this chapter, the veil is taken away. Okay? And you look into the light of the glory. And I think, not just to pick on people from a Catholic background, I grew up in a liberal United Methodist church and it was absolutely the same way. There was a veil. I went through Sunday school and I heard Bible stories and the scripture was read every Sunday. Um, it wasn't preached from, but it was at least read. And we had hymns that had the truth of the Bible in it. Okay? And it just meant nothing to me. It's like, why do I have to be religious? And why do I have to go? And why do I, why do I have to be in church? And, you know, why do I have to do this? And when I came to the Lord, somebody said, well, you should read your Bible. Oh, yeah, they gave me one when I was 12. Where is that? And I found it, and I started reading the Gospel of John. And you all know what I'm saying. It's like, wow, this really happened. This is true, and I just couldn't, I couldn't get enough reading the Bible. Yes. I think that the, it's easy to equate enthusiasm, though, with life. And what we're not talking about is just having a great feeling about religion doesn't mean that you're living. Because I came from a charismatic background, and the charismatics uh, foster and cultivate and pursue feelings and thinking that they're life. And really the life is only found in believing what's true, and it's based on the truth, not based on a feeling. And that whole concept of being enthusiastic for something doesn't mean that you have life. You can be enthusiastic for a, a lie, and you still die. But you know, so I, but it's kind of an interesting thing, so we talk about the Catholic background, like, like what Dick came from. I came from a United Methodist church that was committed to liberalism, at least the one I was in. You came from charismatic. But don't we all have the same result that we that once we realize the truth is in the Bible, that we're hungry for it? I mean, because Keith, I, I saw what happened to you. You just devoured the Bible. Right? <laughs> I was interested. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, uh, because I know because Keith calls me every day. Have you seen this verse? <laughs> Get your Bible. Look at this verse. I think it means this. And so... Having come from a charismatic background with all the experiences and, the, and, and stuff, coming to understand the true gospel, you still come with this hunger for the truth of the Word of God. It doesn't matter your background. It, I think it's true. I know it's true. I will say this with authority. It is true that a sign of regeneration is a appreciation for and hunger for the Word of God. That is a definite sign. As newborn babes in Christ, desire ye the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Uh, and that is just, it just, God does it. Now, that, and that explains these emails I get. Because God always does that. But what's happening, and I just got another one this week. No, a phone call. I had a phone call from a, a, a lady that, uh, from Boston. Who she, I don't know if she's listening to this, so I hope you don't mind me telling the story. 
lady from Boston who's only been a Christian for four years. And she is so hungry for the Word of God and so on fire for the Gospel. And her church went purpose-driven. And so she here she is, a newborn babe in Christ, hungry for the Word, and it's taken away. It's like taking the bottle away from a baby. Okay? And... Um, so she got a copy of my book, gave it to the pastor, and was trying to get him to preach the word. And I had a very interesting conversation with her. Her, she goes out on the streets and witnesses to people and preaches the word of God. And uh, there's a, a guy named Mark Cahill has a book. Yeah, he, she she buys piles of his books and gives them the lost and tell them to read it. <laughs> so. The, the the interesting phenomena that I've heard dozens and dozens of stories are of is that God truly converting people and the church they go to taking their milk away. You know, they're saying, no, we're not going to do that. because Why? Because the unregenerate aren't hungry for it. It's almost a, 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 the difference between being saved and lost. When you're saved, you're hungry for the Word. When you're not, it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, yes. Oh. Uh, you might share the other one where the uh, person, it was a PayPal deal. Remember that? Where uh, it shared that just as an encouragement to some of the people listening to this? Yeah, uh, there was a big long note in a PayPal. They were donating some money saying, thank you for putting your sermons and Bible, is that what it said? Yeah. Bible studies on the Internet. But it was what she did with her sister? Or the Tell me about it. I, okay. I, I guess so many I forget them. Real simple. The woman said, we got kicked out of our churches. Same thing happened to my sister. And so the two of us now download your program. They're studying Second Thessalonians. Read the thing. Then they turn their video cams on each other and get on Slike or, you know, okay. They get on some element and discuss the thing as a Bible study wherever they are. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, it's amazing how you can get fellowship. <laughs> Download the sermon on the internet. Alright, I'll, I'll just have to pick it up on here and then, and, and, uh, uh, do it. Okay, first, uh, you don't need the mic now, I turned it off. Well, I can't use that one because that's the one doing this. Okay, go ahead, Bill. I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, you described a, uh, somebody like, who wants the Word of God and got saved, and then they pull that away and be a purpose-driven church. That's the agenda uh, of these people. It's a bait-and-switch deal. They're trying to get us to marry a false groom. And, uh, they, they're the groom. Okay? Uh, you know, there's Jesus Christ, and we're the bride. They use Jesus Christ as the bait, and then they remove Jesus Christ and then they reveal themselves as Christ incarnate. And, they, and they, they want us to worship them and their system. And so once we're married into their system, they uh, believe that that's the consummation of, uh, of, the, uh, of the wedding. Wow. Yes. I want to read Mac Hammond's bill. It's out of his own mouth. So you get the gist of it. Hammond said, the media and many Christians don't understand the prosperity gospel. God says if you base your life on his covenant, these blessings are going to overtake you. You can't do anything about it, friend. What once was flocks and herds is today's parlance of stocks and bonds. 
Now get this. It takes wealth, folks, to establish God's covenant. Since when did wealth ever establish covenant? Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood, rose from the dead to establish the covenant. He says it takes wealth, folks, to establish God's covenant on this earth. You and I will never get so spiritual that we don't need money to get more influential in this world we're in. Now there's a lie, there's a veil, and pastors trying to give the gospel. These are the things like Paul had to contend with, only it's in the 21st century like pastors contend with. And these people love this veil. Everybody wants to be rich, but nobody wants to be told that you're a sinner and you're going to hell. <laughs> and that you take up your cross and fall Christ. They don't want to hear that. So they love the veil. The congregation is as guilty as the preacher. <laughs> okay, Dan. <laughs> well, I think another way of saying that is if you're a newborn babe in Christ, you don't desire ye the sincere milk of money that you might grow thereby. You know, you desire the milk of the Word. Okay, so uh, just looking at this as a sign of regeneration, any person who's a professed Christian with no hunger for God's truth and who doesn't like hearing the terms of the gospel and the, about the blood atonement uh, proclaimed would be have reason to doubt whether they're truly regenerate. Amen. It would be reason to look up. Maybe I still need to repent and believe the gospel. Yes. Um, I got an email recently. Has anybody heard of uh, what Oprah Winfrey is peddling now? Yeah. The, secret. the secret, yeah. Okay, well, I got an email from a woman that was a Christian that was arguing with me that this is a biblical principle. <laughs> and, of course, it probably she went to the same type of church that you know he was just talking about, Mike Hammond's church. So I responded to her. I said, a gospel message should, be, should work anywhere and everywhere in the world to anyone. Can you imagine preaching that gospel to a newborn Christian in Laos or Vietnam? That if they just say it and claim it, they're going to get a condo? <laughs> like, <laughs> they don't even know anybody with a condo. <laughs> the good news is I got a call from a guy last night that uh, he does seminars on, on cults. He did it here locally for a number of years. I don't know if you know Jay Howard. Yes, I know him. Yeah, he called me last night, and they're <laughs> going to be setting up an anti-secret website. So he called me to see if I'd write an article on it, and they're going to have a series of articles refuting the secret. Good. So I'll let you all know. Good. <laughs> Good. Great idea. Yes, uh, Roger. I don't remember who wrote it, but on Christian Worldview Network, there's an article uh, entitled, If it doesn't preach on death row, it doesn't preach. <laughs> Good. But doesn't preach on death row, doesn't preach. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to tell somebody on death row? Well, if you believe God, you're going to get rich. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, like the thief on the cross. <clears throat> okay, so here's what it, Paul says. You are our letter written on our, in our hearts, known and read by all men. The idea is that the fact that Paul loves them and they are a church that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, they are Christ's letter of condemnation, commendation to Paul. Man, commendation. I can say that. Now, it's interesting. I think the thing is somewhat ironic about this whole thing, what Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, is that this wasn't a very good church. They were really messed up. They had a whole lot of problems, but Paul was willing to claim them because he believed that they really had believed the gospel. And so he did not mind claiming them 
as a letter of commendation to him, even though they had all these problems. Now, I think that shows you something about Paul's pastoral heart, that if he sees a work of grace, and he, he, he must have, or he wouldn't talk like this, he wouldn't call them the Church of Christ in Corinth, Amen. and he sees a work of grace, he's willing to suffer and willing to bear with in order to bring correction these dear people. And I think that a good thing to think about is sometimes we we really don't have a good attitude. If God converts somebody, then he added them to the church. Amen. Does, is that what it says? Yes. God added to the church those who are being saved. So sometimes we start thinking uh, in a kind of a fleshly way, and we think that, well, God just converted somebody that's just too much trouble to deal with. Okay? <laughs> All right? And this this person just is, is going to need too much attention, too many too many problems, and that's not ever a good attitude to have. Okay, if God adds them to the church, they're part of the family of God. They're adopted into the family of God, and the the means of grace will cause people to change. And no matter how bad it was, no matter how troubled we are, if we sit under the means of grace. And when you hear Ryan and I talking about this continually, and Ryan's written about it, um, and I have too, then you will see that through fellowship and prayer and the encouragement and, and, and consolation of the Scriptures that we might have hope and that God is working to change people, that God will do that. It, it isn't where we've been, it's where we're going. Amen. And so Paul was willing to accept as a church that he was responsible for some converts who really had problems. They they really had they were really uh, troubled. They were really difficult. But they were the letter of commendation, read by all men, meaning in an objective sense. Um, <clears throat> the Greek word "read" present present passive participle. Me, the word is anagonosko mene, from the word gnosko mene, and it means to read upon or to see or be an objective outward evidence that Paul was a legitimate apostle. So why could he say that? Well, the only thing that can bring someone to Christ is the true gospel. Amen. All right? And God had used it to convert these people. So objectively, there was a church. Objectively, it was the real gospel because of their confession of Christ and the truth of the resurrection. Even though some of them there questioned it. They are the results of his preaching in Corinth. If they question the legitimacy of Paul's preaching, they question the validity of their own faith. Okay? All right, cross-references. Uh, Kathy, do you want to read 1 Corinthians 3.10? And Dan, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.2. And Lincoln, 2 Corinthians 9.1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 3.10 is the first one. For, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because the glory that is... Okay, that's talking about... Glory. Why did I? One Corinthians three ten. Oh, I'm in two Corinthians. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I thought I made a mistake once. <laughs> yeah, you heard that one. <laughs> According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Okay, so Paul said that as a wise master builder, he laid the foundation, which was the the gospel that was preached at Corinth and and building them on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. And then uh, 1 Corinthians um, 9, verse 2. If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the zeal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Okay, yeah, the zeal of my apostleship are ye, you, plural. Um, I had a quote here that I wanted to read. Um, Paul, uh, here, this is from uh, Barnett, a commentary on 2 Corinthians. Paul, however, has no need of such letters, but points instead to the Corinthian church as Christ's quote-unquote letter of commendation of him, their lives are known and read by everyone. The church then was Christ's letter to Corinth, commending its bearer Paul. Because of the church, Paul has no need of self-commendation. He is commended by the Lord, 2 Corinthians 10:18, as he ought also to have been by the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12:11. Okay. So then, uh, Lincoln, you had uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So there was zeal there to... And this was that uh, offering that he was taking up to care for the saints in Jerusalem and that they had been willing to participate in that. So it was known. I think the reason for that cross-reference is because it, they, were, they, they were known around that area of Greece as being uh, having uh, this Christian commitment. And so that's why Paul talks about that. So they are Paul's credentials. Let's go to verse 3 being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So here we have, um, uh, again, an allusion to the Ten Commandments. Normally, something wouldn't be written on stone, but because he's talking, he's going to set up this as sort of a foreshadowing of an argument he's going to bring up here in this chapter. So he's introducing the Ten Commandments here to bring it up a little bit later. Normally, you could have carried the analogy forward just using papyri or some other means of of writing, but he's bringing up stones here in order to uh, allude to some Old Testament passages and prepare us for his argument that's coming up in this chapter. Now here we have a genitive being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Now the genitive, in fact, in just about any language, I did a little research on it. Somebody asked me about uh, Romans 5.5, 5 and, and uh, there was a genitive there when it talks about the love of God that's poured abroad in our hearts. 
Is it God's love for us or our love for God? Because of the genitive, it could be either one. So instead of answering, I send her five pages out of my Greek manual. So here, read about the genitive and see if you can figure it out. <laughs> and um, uh, out of Dana and Manti. Now, the genitive in, in any language is always a little ambiguity and the context has to let you know whether it's objective or subjective. In fact, Dana and Manti listed seven different ways the genitive functions in a Greek language. So here it can mean, here's the possibilities of the genitive. A letter from Christ or a letter belonging to Christ or a letter that tells of Christ. All of those are possible interpretations of the genitive, a letter of Christ. Now, the New American Standard just simply keeps it and lets us try to decide for ourselves. And which is one of the reasons I really do like the New American Standard for my studies. I'm not saying there aren't other good translations, but the New American Standard always just gives you the basic idea as they, as it comes out of the Greek and you have to do the work yourself. Uh, probably the big difference between that and the NIV is the NIV will make a decision a lot of times and then translate it based on their decision. The New American Standard, you have to decide yourself. Okay? Of Christ is just, just our version of genitive. So, letter from Christ, you are a letter from Christ, or you are a letter belonging to Christ, or you are a letter that tells of Christ. Um, I think the first two could either actually be either or both. Another thing that I've read in some of my commentaries is that they believe that sometimes Paul purposely, purposely uses the ambiguity of the genitive case because he wants us to uh, know that both things are true. I mean, it's certainly, in the context, either thing is true, right? Letter from Christ, Christ having uh, saved a church so the church exists as a letter from Christ, or uh, the church certainly belongs to Christ, and the church should be telling of Christ, if you wanted to say it that way as well. All right? So I'm just laying out here what he's saying. Cared for by us. So here's this letter, the church, and the word cared for in the Greek is ministered, ministered by us, written by the Spirit of God. So this is a very high view of the church of Jesus Christ, a very profound understanding of the church. And I think, again, uh, that's why it's so sad when the church itself, the people, the church, by the way, is not a building. It's not a 501c3, although we have to be organized, but that's just because we obey the laws of the land. The church is not a 501c3. The church is not a building. The church is the people of God who are connected to Christ, the head of the church. Amen. They're the people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, bought with a price, who have been converted and born of the Spirit of God. And that's the letter of Christ, that church. All right. Now, it's a tragedy when leaders of the church have a, a, such a low view of the church that they don't see this. In other words, what a tragedy if we start thinking of the church as sort of our business and uh, the, the, the success of the church is sort of being our business card saying, look at how great I am. 
Look at this big thing that I built, and look how look at this ark. That the church becomes sort of a means to an end, a means to uh, ministerial success, or the means to getting written up in a big magazine. And some of these abuses that we've seen in recent years is sort of a heartbreaking thing because it, it shows that somehow we've lost a conception of the preciousness of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And that and that every single person that God has saved is is precious to him and and they should be precious in the eyes of of elders and church leaders. Amen. And it never should be trivialized. And never should we try to be filling the church up with the unregenerate so that we have more numbers. Okay? Because you can't add anybody to the church, only God can do that. Okay, I can. I don't know if I could do it if I even tried, but possibly we could be uh, interesting enough, fun enough, attractive enough, uh, had the best music that somebody might want to come into the building and, and be here. Okay, but you can't add anybody to the church. God does that when He converts them. Amen. And so, if you really want people added to the church, what you do is preach the gospel as clearly as you possibly could. Everywhere that you could, because that's what God uses to add people to the church. Look at Peter. How did God add people to the very first church? Peter accused them of being wicked sinners. Peter Peter said, you always resist, and he he rebuked him, and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified at the hands of godless men by the predetermined plan of God, God raised from the dead, and then he said, and then he preached the scripture from them, I mean to them from the old covenant, looked at, preached about David, preached about Christ's resurrection. And then as Peter was preaching these things, which wasn't out of a Dale Carnegie course, you know, how to influence people, the Holy Spirit says they were pierced to the heart. Amen. Who pierced their hearts? God the Spirit, yes. Robert. I heard this pastor out of uh, D.C., and he said, what you win them with is what you will keep them with. I heard that in Bible college 30, how many years ago? 33 years ago. In Bible college, they told me the same thing, and I had some really godly teachers. And they said, whatever you do to get people through the door is what you're going to have to use to keep them. So just think twice about what you do to get them through the door. <laughs> it may not be a good thing, yes. You think about Jeremiah who also preached the clear gospel of God, the clear word of God, and bringing uh, the same type of messages of Peter. And nobody was added during his lifetime. <laughs> he ends up dying in Egypt, but his words now still bring people life. So regardless of how we see people added, God's word doesn't return void. And Jeremiah is still speaking and still bringing people to God. Very good illustration. I think every Christian at some point should read, for sure, should read the book of Jeremiah. And every, I did this a while back and then preached a sermon based on my research, so maybe five years ago. I read Jeremiah looking for the biographical details. Um, there, there, you know, in other words, Jeremiah tells about his own misery and he wasn't always very happy. No, he, he, they call him the weeping prophet and he complained to God. But you go through Jeremiah and sort of make a biography or, of Jeremiah out of what you get from the book. And then, and then kind of piece together. Here's what his life was like. And wow, I, I, I he's got to be highly rewarded in heaven. I don't know who else could have had such a miserable ministry to have as Jeremiah. 
Speaking of Jeremiah, I was just looking at 31-33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their hearts will I write it, and I will put their God, and I will be their God. Oh, okay, I'm going to cross that one off my cross-reference list, because you just read it. <laughs> Very astute. That was one of them we were going to look at. God will write it on the heart, but write the law on the heart. That's Jeremiah 31-33. Somebody over here? Oh, yeah, right. I don't remember the details to this, but uh, along the same lines as what, what people are saying here, um, there was a man one time that got saved, and he wasn't a great speaker, you know, and, and he just didn't know what to do. And he just didn't know what to do, so we prayed about it, and what he decided to do was to just take oodles and oodles of gospel tracts out into this park. I don't even remember where it was. I think it might have been in a different country. And he spent like 20 years in this park just handing out gospel tracts every single day, right? And... A lot of people, like, he never, he never ever once um, met somebody that, that um, actually um, repented of their sins and accepted Christ. Um, but, but nobody knew what this guy's name was or how to get a hold of him, right? Well, then some reporter from some newspaper reported on the guy, like, right as he was on his deathbed. He's like, this guy has spent his last 20 years giving out gospel tracts, right? Well, then these people knew what hospital he was in, and, he, and all these phone calls started coming in saying, Hey, remember that that gospel track you handed out? He was a very pleasant man too. Yeah. They said, you know, that was the thing that really started me off, you know, into converting me. Wow. And so right before the guy died, all these people started calling him, and tears were just. So he didn't. He didn't even face. know that he he, there was fruit out there. A week before he died. Wow. All that he mattered in the world. Cool. Here's a quote from Garland: "The translation ministered by us is to be." preferred because it implies that Paul is instrumental in producing and delivering the letter without specifying how. The verb to minister and the nouns minister and ministry refer to Paul's work for the gospel. In context, it refers to Paul's founding of the Corinthian church. He fulfilled the task entrusted to him. The expression ministers anticipates Paul's argument in what follows about his role as a minister of the new covenant. And that, uh, Brian, that the verse you quoted from Jeremiah is a prophecy about the new covenant and the ministry of the Spirit and of righteousness, Second uh, Corinthians 3, 8 through 9, diakonia. Diakonia is the Greek word for minister, where we get our English word deacon. Okay, so a ministered by us, written not with ink, like literal letter of commendation would, but with the Spirit of the living God. And that's God writing on hearts. Did you know God writes on hearts? Yes, he does. I mean, we got some really good cross references here. Denise, uh, Exodus thirty-one eighteen, Joanne, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Dick, Ezekiel thirty-six um, twenty-six, and Brian already read Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, and so Michelle, Jeremiah ten ten, and Dale, Hebrews ten sixteen, and um, the first cross reference is. Um, Exodus 31, 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Okay, written with the finger of God. <laughs> I quoted that one in my debate with Doug Paget, I believe. Um, you know, the the quote-unquote postmodern thing is that words can't convey meaning. And they write a book to tell you that. <laughs> they, 
you know, the, the irony of the whole postmodern thing just never ceases to amaze me. The, I, I, even when I was in seminary, before they ever heard of an emergent church, I was reading the postmodern theology was coming around. That, that's what started it. And then the, the emergent church became an expression of postmodern theology. But in the 90s, I was reading this material from these postmodern theologians. And it's, I'm not exaggerating. You pages and pages of footnote or documentation telling you that human language can't really convey truth. All right. So then I suppose this book. So why did I have to pay thirty dollars for this textbook? I want my money back. Why don't I just sit here and have an experience? <laughs> A lot, a lot cheaper. <laughs> okay, so God writes on stones with his finger. Now, that's not the typical way we get scripture, right? That's the extraordinary. The typical way is he inspired authors of the scripture to write it down. And that's how we have access to anything, including the Ten Commandments. But the fact that the Bible said he did write on stones, words, in fact, in the, in the Hebrew, it's, they're called the ten words, the ten words, um, that uh, God communicates. This is saying loads. Francis Schaeffer wrote books about this. They're very important books. The God who is there and the God who is there and he is not silent. That there is a creator God and we can know what Schaeffer called true truth about God because God has spoken in words that humans can understand. Amen. And God chooses the words. So when God writes on tablets of stone, words, he chooses the words. He chooses to write to the Hebrews in their language. And the words are meaningful to God and to man. So you have real, valid communication from God to man. And that's what postmodernity denies. Yes. that God wrote the first set of tablets unmediated between him and the stone and gave them to Moses. The second time Moses wrote the tablets down, it was mediated wow. uh, to the Israelites. Yeah, the, the Decalogue is mediated. Yeah. Yep. Well, Moses broke, broke the first ones when he got mad at them, right? <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to quote from Garland again. Written on stone tablets, quote-unquote, was the standard expression used to describe the revelation given to Moses on Mount Sinai and stemmed from the biblical account of the giving of the law. In a Jewish context, it was a hallmark of the law's glory, underscoring its divine origin and its everlasting permanence and certainty. Paul may not use the phrase for the same honorific sense it has in rabbinic literature, but it would fit his assertion that the law came in glory. So the, here are the words of God. This is how we know. This is how we have the God that we know. Because he has spoken these words, and the words are inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and binding. Amen. And so when people say, well, everybody has a different interpretation of the Bible. How can we know? No, nobody can know. There's all these different ideas. And so we just throw up our hands. The little engine that couldn't, can't know anything. Well, why? Because of a desire to escape from the authority of those words. If we can't know them, they can't bind us to anything. So when I hear that from people, I say, okay, let me just, let's just discuss one of them that God wrote on the stone. Thou shalt not steal. What does that mean? 
oh, I can't get it. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't go to seminary. <laughs> okay. All right. Dick, you had one? Uh, Joanne? Joanne, did you read that? Oh, yeah, you still have one. Ezekiel 11, 19. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of a heart of flesh. Now, I'll take out the heart of stone. You've heard this one? Take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You soften their hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Same idea, re- reiterated. Uh, Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Wow. The Lord is the true God. At his wrath, the nations quake. Wow. That's a good passage. We should remember that. That was Jeremiah 10.10. Look that one up. That was great. Hebrews 10.16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts, and on their mind I will write them. That, okay, I, the reason I had that Hebrews was because it shows that how Ezekiel was interpreted under the new covenant. So the Ezekiel passage was cited in Hebrews as proof of the new covenant being the laws written in our heart. Now, that doesn't mean the law becomes subjective now. It's still the same law of God. So let's, let's get this correct. The law written on the heart doesn't mean I have my own law and I subjectively fight it by looking inside myself. No, it means that the true law that God gave, He puts on our heart a willingness and an ability to follow it. In other words, to appreciate and to believe and to walk in obedience by His grace. So it's an internal work of grace, but the words are still authoritatively written in the Bible. Written in the Bible, they're not subjective. Does that make sense? Yes. That's how we know another external proof whether somebody is a Christian is that they follow the laws of God as they wander through life on their own. It has to do with the article that you just you just sent out. The same concept that as we live and we choose in our liberty. Uh, we will act according to the laws that he's already written down. Good. So God changes lives, and he speaks in words, and he writes words, and the words retain their meaning cross-culturally and cross-time barriers and cross-language barriers, and we can know God's holy law. Yes? I was just going to say, <clears throat> I think subconsciously we <clears throat> obey laws or have laws from the day we're born. Yeah, that's a, that's general revelation, and it's discussed by Paul in, in Romans two about the human conscience. And so you can look at cu- cultures in the world, and almost everyone has a law against stealing, whether they ever heard of the Ten Commandments, because they have a conscience. And plus, it's, it's common sense that if you want your society to function, you can't everybody stealing everything. <laughs> it doesn't work very good. It's lawlessness. It's anarchy. But a motivation to not steal all comes from the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? That, that changes our heart. Okay, we're going to study Exodus 5. In the, uh, today's sermon is going to be on the entirety of Exodus 5. If you could help take the chairs down, it's time for a time of fellowship. God bless you. <laughs>